Let's pray together. Loving Lord, thank you so much for this time that we can spend in prayer together and now spending time in your word as we dwell in it. We pray that your Holy Spirit, who is present here among us, he will do his work in our hearts and in our minds through his word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I uh, heard a story of a man who worked in a post office. His job was to process all mail that had illegible addresses. Well, one day he got a letter that came to his desk addressed in shaky handwriting to God. He thought, well, I better open this one and see what it's all about. So he opened it, and it read, Dear God, I'm an 83-year-old widow living on a very small pension. Yesterday, someone stole my purse. It had $100 in it, which was all the money I had until my next pension. The next Sunday is Mother's Day, and I've invited my last two friends over for dinner. Without that money, I have nothing to buy food with. I have no family to turn to, and you are my only hope. Can you please help me? The postal worker was touched, and he went around showing the letter to all the others. Each of them dug into his wallet and came up with a few dollars. By the time he'd made the rounds, he'd collected $96, which they all placed in an envelope and sent over to her. The rest of the day, all the workers felt a warm glow, thinking of the nice thing they had done that day. Mother's Day came and went, and a few days later came another letter from the old lady written to God. All the workers gathered around while the letter was open. It read, Dear God, how can I ever thank you enough for what you, what you did for me? Because of your generosity, I was able to fix a lovely dinner for my friends. We had a very nice day, and I told my friends of your wonderful gift. By the way, there was $4 missing. And it was no doubt those thieves at the post office. Now what this uh, humorous story highlights is the skepticism that, much, that many of us live with nowadays. You know, that skepticism even permeates many of our churches, and for good reasons. I've, uh, I've been one of them for a long time. You know, today there are many churches that have been founded and built upon principles that have much more to do with modern businesses and marketing principles than they do with biblical principles and discipleship. So it's no wonder that uh, many of us are skeptical. Now because of this, many today go to churches with an attitude that says that church is here for my needs. It is a consumer way of thinking, a consumer mentality, much like our modern America today. You know, in the uh, 1990s, Bill Hybels' model of church growth was lifted up as the model for building the church, and it was implemented by tens of thousands of, of churches, both in America and around the world. Now, if you like to keep notes, you'll find in the middle of your bulletin 
some notes there that you can fill in the, the blanks. And uh, point one on that outline is this. Ironically, it was Bill Hybel's commission study released actually just a few years ago that found that while this consumer model of church growth was successful in increasing the size of congregations, the size of church buildings, and increasing giving, it ultimately did less than nothing in actually making real disciples of Jesus Christ. Which should then cause us to think of a question. Is it possible for the evangelical church to gain the whole religious world while still losing its soul? I believe the answer to that is yes. As Americans today, we've been wired to think of ourselves as just consumers. Americans are nothing if we're not consumers. Consumers of images, consumers of relationships, and consumers of stuff. You know, the average child today, we're told, watches about 50,000 advertisements on television every year. And on average, on an average day, most of us see well over 5,000 advertisements, despite the fact that uh, most of us today have developed tools to avoid most of them. We can't avoid all of them. In fact, most of them still get through. And our whole society has been transformed into what is often referred to as a consumer heaven. And we are nothing if not a nation of buyers. It's, in fact, the way we think of ourselves today. And churches in, large, in larger and larger numbers are adapting themselves to the felt needs, just like a business might adapt its product to the market. So when someone comes in the church's doors, it's now okay to view that person as a consumer. Churches today market activities, market experiences, market amenities, and programs. But how about the gospel? How about a real and abiding faithful relationship with our Savior? What about truth and doctrine? What about sin, salvation, discipleship? Can that be marketed? Well, according to many church models out today, you absolutely can. Church after church are finding worldly success catering to felt need desires. Desires for personal well-being, even if it's just momentary and fragmentary. Why? Because in America, it's marketing to the consumer that makes things work. Business is all about pragmatism. Whatever works must be right and good. And the modern American church is the Coca-Cola company in the history of the Christian church. So uh, why shouldn't Parkway or any church want this kind of success? Why not be the Pepsi or the Beyonce of the church world? Well, I think the answer is simple. While marketing, if done well, could produce a certain kind of worldly success, it won't necessarily be the kind of success that has to do with the building of the kingdom of God. A church that is large and wealthy 
where the pastor publishes book after book, is not the standard by which we biblically are called to judge the health and vitality of a congregation. Consumers never called to the kind of commitment that requires that we pick up our cross and follow a crucified Savior. A consumer is free to say and define what their need is, but in the kingdom of God, our Savior defines that. We, the sinner, are not free to decide what our needs are. The gospel tells us what our needs are. It is the sovereign God who defines our needs. And in our sin nature, we in our natural selves are enemies of God and hostile to what is truly good and right. See, viewing people as consumers in our churches today has also transformed what we value and find desirable in our leaders, in our, in our elders, in our pastors. Today, what's highly prized among church leaders isn't theology or biblical preaching or even Christ-like character. No, this is point two on your outline. What's prized today among church leaders is the ability to entertain, management skills, and a charismatic personality or the ability to draw crowds and money. You know, in, uh, as further illustration of where our country has gone because of this consumer church mentality, in 1993, a very interesting study was done which took a closer look at George Gallup's original figure of 32% of adult Americans are born-again Christians. The question simply was, back then, do you consider yourself to be a born-again Christian? And that's how they came up with that number. What the follow-up study did was to add just a few modest additional questions about commitment. In addition to asking, are you born again, they also asked, do you go to church with some regularity? Do you pray with some regularity? And do you have some minimal structural or structure of former Christian, formal Christian belief. And when those tests were added, the figure of 32% dropped down to 8%. And my guess is that if the questions were asked that probed even a little deeper, you'd find that number would drop much further. Some uh, Christian scholars have uh, speculated that number should be closer today to 2% of Americans are born-again believers. This isn't the product. Isn't this the product of our consumer culture? I really believe it is. So uh, the question for us remains, how do we judge the health and vitality of a church? I have to ask myself that question a lot as a transitional pastor who does intentional work in churches. And uh, I think we get some answers to our question today in our series in the book of Revelation. We come to this letter to the church in the city of Philadelphia. Now, uh, let me give you a little bit of background here. Historically, the city of Philadelphia was often damaged by earthquakes, which, as you would guess, resulted in a fear that kept a large part of the population from living within the city walls. And by the way, today there still exists a town 
on the ancient site of Philadelphia, and from time to time we still hear of earthquakes there. The town is El Seher in Turkey, which has a population of around 15,000. The word Philadelphia comes from two Greek words, as many of you probably already know. Phileo, which means love, and then the word Adelphos, which means brother. Thus the name Philadelphia means brotherly love. And John's description of the church indicates that it was a small, harassed, and often persecuted church by both the Jews in that city and the Greeks. Yet it remained consistently faithful. The message to them was entirely positive and encouraging. Now most scholars agree that at the time of John's writing, the church, while small, was continually experiencing faithful revival. And I think the example of this church has much to say to us here at Parkway as we continually, regularly seek the Lord's revival and revitalization in our own midst. In fact, I believe this letter is here to encourage churches like ours as we too, while struggling in numbers, surrounded by large, wealthy churches, we too must continuously be seeking the Lord's work of revival. And this uh, letter here is a reminder to us that true spiritual power of a congregation should never be measured by its size or outward wealth. Now there are two major aspects about this church. First, uh, that we're given here. First, they're described as being of little strength. Now, in historical context, this is speaking not just about the size and political influence, but also their wealth. In other words, they are poor, small, and regularly harassed. And this comes, brings us to point, the next point on your outline. The church at Philadelphia, by the standards of their culture and ours, doesn't look like a strong, healthy church. See, they weren't busy using the business methodology of their time or ours to become large, wealthy, and influential. Yet Jesus has nothing negative to say about them, nothing at all. Why? Because they were faithful in the situation in which they were planted. They remained faithful to the truth of the gospel. And uh, what does that faithfulness look like? Well, let's go back to the description of Jesus here. Why? Well, because what's going on here is the physical description of Jesus to each church is literarily linked to how Jesus addresses that particular church. Jesus is here described as holy and true. And because he says nothing negative about the church in Philadelphia, the point is is that they too were acting in the nature of Jesus as he is described. If all he said was negative, then they would have been acting in the opposite way to the description of Jesus, just as we saw with the church last week. And so this church at Philadelphia, under the power of the Holy Spirit, was holy. Now, that doesn't mean that they always acted individually and corporately without sin, but rather that they faced the truth and realities of their own sins and sought to live in relationships of true repentance and true forgiveness with each other and with God, and then 
with the, went back to being obedient again, and when they fell, they went through that cycle again. That's what it means to be holy. Point four on your outline is this. They were holy. They didn't act always perfectly in their ethical situation, but rather they always upheld moral absolutes and moral truths, and they sought to be obedient when they sinned. They sought to be obedient, and when they sinned, they did not deny those sins or sought to make them less significant, but sought regular reconciliation with others and with God. And they also were true. Not only upholding the truths of God's word, but also true and faithful in their character to God and to one another and to their community. Living lives of transparency and openness. All of this despite the fact that they were, they're described as being little strength, small, poor, little political influence. They didn't have what most would consider outward worldly strength and blessing, yet they remained true. They prioritized Jesus and the gospel and moral goodness and truth in their lives and in the life of their community. See, the word that is used here for true is alethanos, which also has the idea of being genuine and authentic as opposed to what is fake or unreal. So if you have the true one, the genuine one, the real and holy Son of God, Jesus, the one who is perfectly genuine and true, speaking in very positive ways about this church. The next point on your outline is Jesus places a premium on genuineness, authenticity, and truth. And this church lived this out. See, Jesus, the genuine and holy one, commends this church. I think this is an amazingly encouraging word. Jesus sees this church perfectly. The holy and truly faithful one sees this church and commends them. And uh, my, which is, by the way, my daily prayer for Parkway, which is that Jesus would look at us the same way. If so, then I would feel like I've been faithful to my calling as your transitional pastor. Despite the fact that we too are today of little strength. See, people and churches that know that they are of little strength will more likely seek out God's strength. Christ's power to work in them all that he desires. See, this church is like Paul. We remember when he wrote to the Corinthians these words, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, this church in Philadelphia experiences these, experienced these weaknesses, these insults, these hardships, persecutions, and difficulties. They were faced with what John describes here as the synagogue of Satan. See, they were facing persecution from the Jews of their city who were blocking them from spreading the gospel. 
The Jews there refused to recognize that God's love and God's kingdom was at work in his church in Philadelphia. And they were actively opposing this church. Soon people will recognize this church as the Israel of God, as John puts it here, Jesus' words. Because the church is the spiritual inheritor of the promises of Israel. And God has placed his favor on his faithful and true church. See, those particular Jews had chosen to reject God's work there and to actively oppose this church. And while the church at Philadelphia was faithful, or as John puts it, they had not denied Christ's name, the Jews also saw themselves as the people of God. But they were actively opposing this church and therefore actively denying Christ's name. In many ways, this was the anti-modern American church. We've decided that churches of little strength are of little or no value. We in America like the big, popular, rich, and powerful churches. We've decided that through certain marketing and business models, we can build the kingdom of God, offering everything to everyone. It's no wonder that so many are skeptical of churches. Now, the other major description of this faithful church is also, once again, connected to the description of Jesus. See, John writes, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. See, Jesus holds the keys of David. You know the only other place the key of David is referred to? You know where that is? Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, verses 20 through 22, we get an echo from here from Revelation of that passage. Here's how how it's uh, stated. In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fashion your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. See, Elikam, the son of Hilkiah, was given the key to the house of David during the reign of King Hezekiah. The key was carried kind of on a cord around the hung over the shoulder, and the keys unlocked the house of David, which contained all the treasures of the kings of Judah. So Eliakim controlled who could go in and who could go out. He had the authority to do it. And Jesus also holds the key to heaven and the new Jerusalem that's coming when he returns. Because Jesus holds the key, he controls who gets in, And who doesn't? In other words, there is no one else who can open and close this door. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. See, Jesus also says to the church in Philadelphia, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. 
See, the sovereign Jesus is basically telling them that the fields are ripe for harvest. Opportunities for evangelism, for the spread of the gospel, for making disciples. And it's being done not by great business models, but by Jesus himself, who holds the keys to the kingdom of God. And he is inviting them, inviting this church in Philadelphia to recognize that they are a truly healthy church because they are spirit-empowered. And now Jesus is telling them, and I believe he's telling us the same thing, to live into that by going out, spreading the gospel far and wide. See, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the door. He holds the keys. And he is doing his duty. And it's for this very purpose that Jesus has come. The church at Philadelphia is being commended here for knowing this. I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus is the one who opens the door that no one can shut. And he is the one who shuts the door that no one can open. Jesus is the sovereign one. He will call his people. Only he has the power. It isn't about better marketing and business plans and marketing strategies. strategies. It's about being faithful in our whole hearts to that which he has called us to. It's about being actively faithful when God opens the door in the life of others to speak of Jesus' love and truth into their lives. And it's ultimately about recognizing that it is all his work. It is he that softens hearts and opens minds. We're called to be his faithful ambassadors in the lives of those around us, but it is ultimately Jesus who opens and shuts, locks and unlocks. It isn't our eloquent words, praise God, but it is speaking genuine and true words. It isn't about our business and marketing methods, but faithfully and lovingly connecting with people and telling them of the grace and love of our Savior. And no one can stand against his saving work to call those whom he's calling. Jesus tells them that he has opened the door for them into the lives of others in Philadelphia that no one can shut. I wonder if we too are looking for and praying for and recognizing the open doors of Jesus, the Almighty God, the Sovereign One who is opening doors in the lives of those around us. He will open and shut doors. So Jesus was at work opening the doors in their midst. And I believe that is true of Parkway as well. It is the heart and the vi- of the vision and mission that God has given us here at Parkway, isn't it? His vision and mission, which is, by the way, always on the front of your bulletin, is about opening doors. The question is, is will we walk through? Will we be about our Lord's business of seeking and saving the lost? Are you willing to pray daily for your neighbors, for your friends and your family? Are you willing to speak about Jesus and your relationship to Him with people who don't know Him? Are you willing to pray for and look for open doors in the lives of those around you? In 2004, Viktor Yuchenko stood for the presidency of the Ukraine. 
Now, he was uh, vehemently opposed by the ruling party. And Yuchenko's face was disfigured, and he almost lost his life when he was mysteriously poisoned by those who opposed him. But ultimately, that wasn't enough to deter him from standing for the presidency. On the day of the election, Yuchenko was comfortably in the lead, but the ruling party was not to be denied. And so they tampered with the results. And the uh, state-run television stations reported, and here's how they reported it. Ladies and gentlemen, we announce that the challenger, Viktor Yuchenko, has been decisively defeated. But in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, a woman by the name of Natalia Dimitruk was providing a translation service for the deaf community. And as the news presenter regurgitated the lies of the regime, of the regime Natalia Dimitruk refused to translate it. Instead, this is what she signed. I'm addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. They are lying, and I'm ashamed to translate those lies. Yuchenko is our president. The deaf community sprang into action. They text messaged their friends about the fraudulent results, and as news spread of Dimitrik's act of defiance, increasing numbers of journalists were inspired to also begin to tell the truth. Over the coming weeks, what is referred to as the Orange Revolution occurred as a million people wearing orange made their ways to the capital of Kiev, demanding a new election. The government was forced to meet their demands, and a new election was held, and Viktor Yuchenko became president. You see, uh, why did I tell you this story? Well, let me just say that we as a church do not control the big screen. And when we do, we usually mess it up. Go to any magazine rack or turn on the television, you see a consistent message. Well, what is that message? What matters is how beautiful you are, how much money and power you have. And many churches have fallen for this same worldly message, this value. We like the world focus on the rich and the powerful. And in the big screen, we see these powerful churches, these wealthy churches. But in the small screen, the interpreter named Jesus is saying, in effect, don't believe the big screen. They're lying. It's the small church, the powerless church in Philadelphia, which is faithful. That is the true church. Let's get to uh, the next part of this uh, message of Jesus. Because he's going to tell us what the rewards are for faithful perseverance. He puts it as being literally kept in the time of trial. In other words, being embraced and strengthened in the midst of trial. Not to be taken out of it, but kept in his embrace through the trials. And so I want to encourage each of you this morning. You all are a rich church.
rich in the ways that count, rich in faithfulness and in generosity. And I think this amazing word of encouragement to this faithful church is also to us in faithfulness. Jesus says, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Do you see these four eternal and rich blessings? First, he says, I'll make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and you won't go out of it anymore. See, Jesus is going to make you a permanent pillar in the house of God. See, a pillar symbolically points to stability and permanence, an immovable monument. It would be an honor. See, for a pillar in that day was carved to honor people's gods. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to give you an eternal place of honor, and I'm going to give you an eternal place of stability and permanence. Remember what I told you at the beginning, that this was a city that was used to uncertainties and earthquakes? And so this would be an amazing, encouraging promise. One that is unshakable, permanent, immovable, eternal, stable, secure. That's who they are and where they're going. Second, he says, I will write on him the name of my God. See, the people of the synagogue of Satan thought that they were representing God, that they had the name of God when they attacked these Christians. But they were wrong. They didn't belong to God at all. But this church did belong to God. Security forever in heaven and a personal relationship with God and a permanent identity found in Jesus Christ alone. What an amazing promise. And the third thing, I'm going to write on them the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. In other words, citizenship, eternal citizenship in the new heaven and the new Jerusalem, which we'll be talking a lot more about later in the series. And then he says, I'm going to give you my new name. See, we know Jesus, but we haven't yet known him face to face. We will know him more deeply and intimately. What a joy that will be, and an amazingly encouraging word, I think, to them and to us. And I pray that we might be found faithful in all that God calls us, holy and true, that we might find that amazing eternal joy of knowing Jesus intimately and face to face. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, Your grace and mercy are higher than the heavens. Your forgiveness and your love is wider than all of our wanderings. You are truly an amazing God. A God of kindness. God of love. 
Thank you, Lord, that you are busy opening doors. Opening doors into the lives of others. And Lord, we pray that we might be found faithful to follow your leading to those open doors. That we might indeed communicate your grace and your love into their lives as those doors become open. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you.